and welcome to the latest edition of Proximo's 20 Minutes with Podcast. If this is your first time listening, Proximo is the leading source of intelligence and events for the project, energy, and infrastructure finance market. I'm Tom Nelthorpe, an editor at large here at Proximo, and I'm very glad you could listen in. Thanks to everyone who could join us in person at our recent events in Miami and Dubai. We had some really good feedback from our guests, and we'd like to hear from anyone who does have any suggestions about how to make them even more engaging. If you are a Proximo member, you can, of course, view all the recorded sessions online. We will be on the road over the next few months, starting with our Financing America's infrastructure event in May, and then at our European event in Lisbon in June. We hope to catch up with you at one or other of those. Next month, we release our full year 2020 data report, which will give you an idea of which corners of the market perform best in 2022. You'll have seen some articles we've produced in recent weeks about the impact of various uh, bank mergers on the contours of the project finance market. And of course, we'll continue to monitor the effects of this regulator prompted consolidation as it happens. If you have any questions about the above, email us at team at or you can find our page on LinkedIn. But now it's time to introduce today's guests. They are Brian Cassett, the treasurer, and James Marshall, the CFO of AES's Clean Energy Business Unit in the US. Brian's based in Colorado and has been with AES since 2014, while James is based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and has been with AES since, 20, uh, since 2007. AES probably doesn't need a huge amount of introdu introduction. It's an independent power pioneer, a globe-trotting power producer and distributor based in Arlington, Virginia. And what we're um, going to hope to talk about today is how you innovate in developing and financing new renewables capacity, given that heritage, and in particular about a couple of recent transactions that really put that into practice. Uh, what AES has done, to simplify wildly, is to put in place a permanent structure that allows for fast financings for the construction of new capacity, uh, and then frictionless long-term refinancings of those assets when they're operational. Um, it sounds easy, but it's preoccupied growing IPPs for a couple of decades now. And the renewable incentives regime can throw up some interesting challenges in the US. Um, so Brian and James, thank you very much for, for joining us um, to, to explain how you put this in place. Uh, and, and I guess, first of all, um, I'd just like to, to get a little bit of background from you about the, the clean energy unit, how it evolved, uh, and really how it sits within, within AES. Thanks, Tom. This is James, and I'll, I'll start off there. So won't, won't spend much time on AES, but as everybody likely knows, AES is a Fortune 500 company. Uh, it's headquartered in Arlington, Virginia, and has been around a little bit more than 40 years. During that entire history, AES has really been mission-driven. And currently, what we're focused on is accelerating the future of energy together, and together with not just those in the company, but the industry, the stakeholders, sort of the world writ large. Within AES, um, we work in the AES Clean Energy Business Unit. <clears throat> Going back to the early 2000s, AES has been making a variety of investments in clean energy and renewables. And starting in 2021, we pulled together everything that AES had done in the United States before that time and turned it into AES Clean Energy, integrating different departments, different companies that we were a part of into one cohesive way to think about clean energy in the United States, and really to start focusing on customers in a way that we hadn't in the past and that we thought the industry at large needed to. And, and that's been a huge success. It's really led to rapid growth. 
that when we started to, to co-create with our customers to deliver them the products that they wanted and needed, rather than sitting back and responding to RFPs, the, the relationships that have come out of that and the, the new ways to sell energy to our customers that have come of that have really been substantial. So what did that lead to? Globally, AES sold more clean energy to corporations measured by signing PPAs than any other supplier uh, as, as determined by Bloomberg New Energy Finance in 2021 and 2022. That's about five gigawatts of PPAs across the AES portfolio each of the last two years. More specifically in the AES Clean Energy U.S. Renewables business unit, we have more than 4.9 gigawatts in our operating portfolio across more than 500 projects in half the states in the U.S. We have a large pipeline, more than 50 gigawatts of development that includes solar, wind, energy storage, and green hydrogen. And most recently, uh, in the fourth quarter of 2022, we, we announced the largest and most advanced green hydrogen project in the U.S. in partnership with Air Products. But what we're doing in, in the clean energy business unit is trying to use our more than 1,000 people to develop and deliver customer-focused solutions that are going to help our customers meet their goals most pointedly at matching renewables much better to their time of use and, and trying to figure out ways to structure our products so that the customer is really realizing um, a carbon-free future on a more granular basis. We've done that through a couple uh, of innovative products. We, we were the first out there with a 24-7 carbon-free energy hourly matching project, which we did first with Google and PJM in 2021. And we've really got grown from there. So all of this coming together really made in the last 30 months or so, AES Clean Energy a much more substantial player than the components were previously. That customer strategy was successful. Integrating the way that we led uh, and managed the business was very successful. And, and it gave us line of sight into a very large scale multi-year development and construction pipeline, which presented a pretty, uh, pretty interesting challenge for Brian and I to think through because we had a, a look into the future of consistent multi-gigawatt needs to finance our projects, it pushed us to think about a capital strategy that would not look like where we had been in the past, but think about the scale of the organization in 2030 and try to work with our capital partners to, to deliver products from a financing perspective that that were consistent with that scale and the consistency and, and the growth rate that we were projecting into the future. Thanks, James. So you'd pr presumably previously, it, you almost described it, wait for an RFP. So you'd have RFP, PPA, project financing, you know, almost almost repeat and rinse. Was that, was that how the financing process looked like until recently, essentially project by project um, and move on to the next one? I think for the most part, so it was very focused on construction financing and tax equity bridge loan financing at, at the project or small portfolio level with uh, with often that, that turning into longer term bank debt. And then um, part of our history was accessing the capital markets when those operating assets had matured with a bond structure, but it was all very bespoke 
and it was not as um, uniform and a financing machine like we've tried to build the last couple of years. At the time of the merger, we, we really brought together two very talented finance teams. I mean, we brought together two very talented organizations. Uh, but as treasurer, I got a, a direct purview as to the talent we were bringing in from both sides, um, the, the AES distributed energy side and uh, the S-Power side, along with some other folks who uh, had worked in other parts of AES. Now, the S-Power side was very much focused on large utility scale projects, and they had experience doing that better than anybody else and aggregating these portfolios using construction debt that that converted into term bank debt, aggregating these portfolios and, and going out to the capital markets once they reached a well-diversified scale. And that, that experience was really valuable to, to what came next for us. On the other side, on the distributed energy side, they had a much different challenge where um, that business was financing 30, 40 projects a year, all you know, five to 10 megawatts. And they had to figure out how to do that efficiently and consistently. And they developed some really interesting financing structures where uh, basically it was a portfolio approach with concentration limits. They weren't closing on every project at the time of, uh, of uh, closing on the financing. And this also was a valuable concept that we brought into, into clean energy to, to form what came next. Um, it, I, I, I do want to go back really quickly to the challenge of scale and how valuable it is to be part of an organization that has a long-term strategy to address the renewables market. Across the clean energy organization, we all were challenged to think about how to create an industry-leading business. And, and that's what we did with this structure, we believe. And, and I, I'm sometimes heard uh, independent power developers really talk about almost the tyranny of the classic project finance structure. Um, you've talked in a very kind of um, uh, forward-looking way about, about being customer-focused and, and how your financing strategy w w was maybe responsive to that. But were there any moments that you found classic project finance to be uh, either sort of restrictive or, or, or maybe just sort of conceptually a little bit dry for, you, for your needs? I think the challenge that we felt most acutely was not could it meet the needs, but you know, we have an outstanding team, but we, we have upwards of 30 projects in construction today. And to do things without building a new way of delivering project finance, the size of the team that we would need would just be a, a little bit unfathomable. Right. We we have great team that works really hard to deliver what we have, but the the level of focus and attention from both a finance and legal perspective that not evolving would require was something that that when Brian and I sat down and started to chart our future, it was a little bit difficult to think how we would how we would meet that challenge. There there were many others that I'll let Brian get into, but but I think at a start the efficiency was needed. Uh, just basically to, to scale up with the growth of the organization to deliver so many projects each year. That's right. And, 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 and what we figured we could do is, is we thought that if we took our portfolio 
and cross-collateralized greater portions of it throughout the financing process, we could ease up on some of the barriers that had traditionally existed through project finance. A, a, very, a very obvious example is um, the period of time between mechanical completion and substantial completion, uh, where debt is still senior secured and you have the tax equity in the transaction. That is just, it's an incredible amount of paperwork and, and, and challenging negotiations. And that is one example of the efficiency of the warehouse, which remains in a back levered position uh, behind tax equity throughout the development cycle. And it's an example of how we used cross collateralization to become more efficient on the financing side. And, and so Brian, you, you talked a little bit, of, you and James have talked about speed, a little bit about efficiency, a little bit about scale. What were the other objectives that you were you were looking to bear, you know, bring to bear with this pro program? And, and, and maybe to what extent were you able to draw on your existing financing methods to, to sort of chart a new course? Yeah. Yeah. So post-merger, the first, the first challenge in front of us was just the incredible amount of CapEx that it would take to complete the construction program. Um, we, we, we certainly had the advantage of financing facilities that had carried on um, from both sides of the business that we could continue to draw on um, to keep us liquid um, throughout throughout um, early stage construction on a number of projects, but we were just staring down the pipeline of a massive uh, pipeline. And um, that's where the construction warehouse came in. And the clear objective of the construction warehouse was to finance utility scale uh, projects in a way that had really only been done on, on a distributed generation basis. Like there has been these 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 finance facilities that could do 20 to 30 projects at a time, but those were five to 10 megawatt projects. And we needed to do it for projects that range from five to 10 megawatts all the way up to hundreds and hundreds of megawatts. Um, so we really did combine that knowledge that we had on both sides of the business to form the warehouse, but we knew we knew once we formed the warehouse and and had assets uh, in that facility, and we're currently financing 22 assets through the construction warehouse, which is an absolute in incredible number, um, and and has just created much efficiency in the business. But we we knew that once those assets were in the warehouse, we would need a quick and efficient way to get them out of the warehouse without using uh, bank facilities, additional bank facilities as an intermediate um, holding place for projects coming out of the warehouse into the capital markets. And that's really where the master indenture came in as an efficient way to bring projects out of the short-term warehouse facility and into a long-term capital structure with, without having to wait um, years and years to aggregate a well-diversified portfolio that could go out to the capital markets all at once. You know, I, I think stepping back, right, what, what we've really endeavored to do is to think through each part of the capital structure. And Brian's just talked about the construction uh, warehouse and the takeout with the master indenture. 
which are really the, the kind of core innovations that we've, we've delivered over the last couple of years. And <clears throat> as we do that, I mean, I, I think a couple things to keep in mind, right? The, the scale and the strategic imperative to continue uh, delivering that scale has enabled this. And on top of that, you know, the, the warehouse itself is a great tool, but if you only use it once, which I think is what Brian was saying, it's a more expensive tool, right? So we're betting on our ability to put things in efficiently. It's about the same level of effort to put things in the warehouse as it is to raise traditional construction financing, but then it's much more efficient while we're there until the takeout where we're not term converting debt, but we're doing a capital markets takeout. So the, it all kind of fits together cohesively to to deliver our pipeline in, in the most effective way. And, and so cleaning or, or simplifying a, a financing process must at, at times be a little bit maybe like cleaning out a, a closet. You find all these things in here that, that, that there must be an argument for having them, whether it's a, a you know covenant package or a series of, of reports. And, and there must be for every single one of those an argument that you absolutely can't live without them, basically. Um, was that the chief challenge, basically sort of decluttering the process or was it more or less maybe process driven and more sort of conceptual, getting people's head around the big picture? I think ex externally um, that, that was certainly a challenge, right? There's history of warehouses in the, the IPP industry more broadly, but, but with gas plants years ago. And so what the, the conceptual leap, leap that we made with our financing partners is some of the things you're talking about, Tom, are absolutely critical when you only have one or two assets. But as Brian said, when you have 22 assets, then one of those things going a little bit wrong is a much less issue for your financing package because of the cross-collateralization. And, and let's just spend a minute on cross-collateralization because it, it obviously has a lot of pros in what we've done. But the discussion we had internally was um, clearly a pro in the short term, but are, are you aggregating risk because one or two or five projects could take down a whole portfolio? Less of a concern probably during the construction warehouse phase, but, but more of a, a risk exercise in the master indenture. And conceptually where we got to was, if you look forward to AES Clean Energy, it's gonna have a very large capital structure in 10 years, right? The growth's going to continue and we'll need a lot of capital to finance that growth. and each master indenture will look like a mega thermal project historical financing. So it'll be a couple billion dollars. Uh, it will be cross collateralized. It'll be dependent on um, the performance of those assets, but because there's many assets underneath it, it's actually less risky in aggregate than, than a financing for uh, a large scale hydro or something like that, that AES would have done in the past. Um, and so when we, when we were having these discussions, you know, innovation is at the core of who AES is. And there were lots of questions, but a lot of openness to figure out how to lead in the way that we have. And, and that's that's sort of in AES's DNA. And, and you see it in spades. We've talked about customers already, probably not the focus about this, but AES has been very much innovating in supply chain. And then we've done it here with financing to look for uh, whether it's in our industry or, or elsewhere, the best way to do things and try to apply them, even if we're going to be the first that are applying those. Whether it's the warehouse or the master indenture, overcoming some of those hurdles, 
having insight into your pipeline is paramount and understanding where the next megawatt is coming from, not only to give you the ability to um, negotiate a framework that you know is going to work to finance the assets that you have, but also to be able to give your partners, uh, your lenders, your investors, um, the, the proper foresight into what you are accomplishing, what you are trying to accomplish and how and how they are going and, and the portfolio that they are going to end up financing. It's very important in establishing concentration limits um, in these facilities and, and both the warehouse and the master indenture has has concentration limits. But simply establishing concentration limits and, and hoping that your pipeline will um, match them isn't something that's going to work. You have to have the pipeline first. You have to have the growth first. Thanks, Brian. And, and, and it's interesting. My colleagues keep telling me that I have to stop talking about what happened in the U.S. power market like 20 years ago. But uh, James, I think you'd you sort of raised some of the some of the analogs. Just very briefly, did did either of you during the process come across any bankers with tremendously long memories who who sort of brought up objections based on that? Or was it sort of viewed as, as as sort of pretty much past history by the time you came to the process? Yeah, I think it was pretty much viewed as past history, but to the extent it was referenced, it was in a more positive way, saying we've done warehouse facilities that were substantial in the past. We can apply them to this new segment of growth in the industry. You've talked a lot about how you've become a lot more customer focused, that you're you're delivering a lot more power to sort of corporations under PPAs. Is there any particular relationship between that the corporate customer base and the the structure you've put together or is this a structure that's relatively sort of off-taker agnostic yeah I, I think we've worked really hard to have it the structure reflect our business as a whole and while we are very focused on our cni customer base we, we have a variety of customers including community solar programs on the small end and, and utility scale, uti utility customers on the large end as well. And we've, we've tried to make each of these programs fit the way we're going to grow. And so it, while we, we love those deep relationships, uh, it's not, it hasn't exactly enabled the financing. The financing has been built to be flexible to manage those customer relationships, regardless of who the customer is. But the, the diversity of commercial structures that that exists within our pipeline has been an asset as we go to structure the financing. The well-diversified customer base is important to our partners. Thanks, Brian. And what do you, do you both think were the most uh, novel or most interesting or even the most you know challenging to put in place Features of the uh, of the program, maybe split between the the warehouse and the and the master indenture. What 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 for you guys were the real standout features? I think I think actually, if I could start with the master indenture, uh, because I I think that market, the 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 debt private placement market, was much less used to having um, uncertainty in their portfolios. In other words, they, they, were, they weren't as comfortable um, establishing concentration limits and, um, and, and, and then assuming that the projects that met those concentration limits 
would come. I think we were able to overcome those obstacles, first of all, by having insight into our pipeline, as, as just discussed, but also uh, because we are who we are, uh, being, being a company that has consistently executed on its pipeline for decades, uh, they were able to, to be comfortable that, that that pipeline would convert from, uh, from a early stage slash construction pipeline into operational assets uh, that would be ready to be dropped into the master indenture. And, and it ended up being quite the selling point, I think, in the debt private placement market, whereas there has been um, uh, a bit of a lull in uh, renewable energy activity in that space, at least domestically, uh, for the past year and a half. And here we were offering a solution that because it was cross-collateralized and because we were starting with a very strong baseline portfolio, uh, that would that would have us coming out to that market two to three to four times a year in the future um, and giving those investors uh, consistent business um, to, to do with AES through this structure. Uh, now we didn't we didn't have to build up a a portfolio that was four six hundred million dollars of of uh, of debt every time we go out to market. Now we can go out to market uh, two to three hundred million dollars at a time, which allows us to do it much more frequently. And because each tranche underneath the master indenture is cross collateralized with the previous tranches, we automatically step into the shoes of a well diversified and established portfolio. It was exactly the draw like Brian's was talk talking about. Uh, it was also as we were marketing a point of conversation because um, Investors in our industry are not as accustomed to not knowing what that next tranche will look like precisely. We were able to give them an indication because of the strength of our pipeline as to what's coming in the, the short term. But the, the way that we structured around these things is we, we have an IE bring down and a re-rating for each new tranche that's cross-collateralized under the master indenture. And so the, the investors get comfort that it'll look enough like what's already there from a credit quality perspective that that they were all in in investing and, and we built a great investor base in the first issuance as a consequence when it comes to the warehouse it's it's actually a, a bit of a, a a different conundrum just because the the assets are um in such a different stage of development they're in construction this is a is a is a construction warehouse um, CapEx is, is quite heavy during construction, particularly um, prior to bringing in um, any, any tax equity. Uh, so as you can imagine, to, to finance a pipeline that is going to be CODing gigawatts per year, um, you, you, need, you need it to be quite large. Uh, we started with 700 million. Uh, we ended up, um, we're currently at a state of 1.5 billion. Um, and 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 there's 18 lenders in the warehouse, right? So 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 getting the documents and the governance to the point where you were more efficient with 18 lenders under one facility um, compared to uh, 10 facilities with maybe three, four, five lenders in each 
was a bit of a challenge, right? And it, and, it, and it really required trust on both sides. And I think some of those same attributes that helped us with the master indenture, having insight in the pipeline, being a yes, having a history of performing helps with that conversation as well and, and, and helped us get the documents to a point where, um, to, to the point where we could really efficiently uh, get projects in and, and out of the warehouse. Yeah, I mean, if, if I were to just sort of sum up here with, you know, where we've been and where we're going, we, we've benefited from having leadership at the AES level that had a strategic vision that stretched years into the future and allocated resources for us to deliver that growth. We had a DNA already in our culture around innovation, and we were able to apply that here uh, from a finance perspective. And so... As I, as I think about you know what's what's next for us, we have some tactical operational things we need to continue to prove out, like issuing the the second tranche under the master indenture, like proving out our thesis by churning several times the warehouse. But but I think the mandate that Brian and I will continue to have is to figure out what's going to be the most efficient way to source capital for our capital structure. And we're going to keep doing that, uh, whether it's something that's been done before or something that has a deep history that we're leveraging based on the precedents from others. Thanks, James. And, and I, I guess to, to very briefly follow up on that, it, it, how could, in particular, the master indenture structure, how do you think that can evolve um, and how do you think it, it should or maybe will evolve? Um, I mean, it's rare that these things, you know, when you're doing this great leap, that they, they sort of spring forth fully formed. Is there is there some work to do to to, to, to maybe make it even more user-friendly? I, I think as investors get more and more comfortable, we expect uh, there to be some evolution here. You know, our focus right now, given that the, the master indenture that we've already issued under, we need to fill it up. We have about $650 million outstanding. We'll test where the edge of the market is from a competitive cost perspective, but we think that'll be, call it two to $3 billion somewhere. We'll, we'll think about innovating once this first tranche is all the way full and we've made our investor base happy and shown uh, really what they want, that we, we will provide them an investment opportunity that's regular for them to grow their book over time. And I, I think as we build up that base, as people get more comfortable with the structure that we took really from real estate and applied here in the renewables business, that we'll have the ability to push the envelope a little bit but, but it's not yet crystal clear what the future will hold. And we'll, we'll have to see uh, as we deliver how we are able to, to push the edges of innovation. Running very over now. Um, so Brian Cassett and James Marshall, thank you so much for your quite a bit more uh, than 20 minutes. Please, uh, listeners, do subscribe to us through any of the most common channels to keep receiving us every month. Um, but for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.